Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and all over the world at WERU.org. A healthy choice. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast Maine boat building repair and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew. Online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998, in Trenton at 479-4269 or Parley at gmail.com. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. I shall buy the sails, sir. I shall buy the pitch of fish and take some home to lie, sir. Good morning, good morning. That's our friend Schooner Fair piping in boat talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. And all around this great wet world at WERU.org, boat talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your Rusty Anchors, Mike Joyce, and Alan Sprague, and you never know just what we might haul up. Today we're going to be doing a trap entrapment, we'll call this show today. We're going to be discussing mainly lobsters, pun intended, but we've got a few other things to get to before we get into the the real topic. Yeah, tell us. Okay. um, Speaking of lobsters, though... uh, the Border Patrol agent fever seems to have spread north, too. There are um, members from the United States U.S. Customs and Border Protection uh, boats have been going over into Canadian water near uh, near the border between, United, between Maine and Canada and uh, boarding Canadian boats allegedly saying they are looking for illegal immigrants. I've never heard of a Canadian lobsterman catching any illegal immigrants. Oh, you're saying that that is a stated reason they're boarding the boats? This would be off of Machias Seal uh, Island, which is in dispute uh, since the revolution between Maine and Canada. This is a Machias report. Seal Island is staffed by Canadian Coast Guard men. It's an unmanned lighthouse, but it's staffed. They stay there to make sure it's still Canadian. But both sides fish those waters, which are very valuable. Yeah, there there are definitely some hot waters, and getting hotter, we'll get around to that in a little bit. But yeah, this is a report from the Canadian Broadcasting Company, who interviewed some of the fishermen after the fact, and the fishermen uh, claimed that the uh, agents were, quote, looking for illegal immigrants. I bet that all went down with not much humor involved, Uh, uh, you know. Well, yes. 
Wow. I think uh, Canada's being quite nice and dignified about it, but it's... Uh, well, uh, I tried to be a Canadian years ago. I went to university there. They threw, my, uh, they threw me back, okay? They would not have me, so um, I'm uh, mixed uh, ideas about putting the Canadians in their proper place, the, yeah. uh, you know, damn polite, uh, <laughs> <laughs> good-looking, capable bunch up there. Where would illegal immigrants around Machaya Seal Island come from? Uh, well, yeah. uh, we could uh, go on about that, but we got more important fish to fry this morning or, yeah, okay. or a lobster to boil in butter. Yeah, uh, we're going to be talking about the book, um, The Last Lobster, but there's another book that uh, piqued both our interests that's come out just recently. Uh, particularly good for me because it's a book with a lot of pictures, which <laughs> one of my favorite books is called Down East, An Illustrated History of Maritime Maine. It's by Lincoln Payne. Lincoln also wrote a book called The Sea and Civilization. So it's nice he's zooming in on us. He's, yep. a, he's a native. And uh, and he also wrote Ships of the World. Yeah, so gonna be very a, capable, uh, all wonderful books. So I can't wait to see this. Yeah. And we will certainly talk to him. I hope so. Yeah. I hope we get a, a, a one to hold in our hands, too. Yeah. That would be great. Speaking of holding my hands, I was at the library, and I saw this uh, last lobster. Well, it's got a, uh, a boat or a fish in it. I'm all over it. Boomer Bus for Maine's greatest fishery, Christopher White. This is uh, extraordinarily well done. Uh, a take on the Maine lobster fishery based around uh, Stonington, Maine, is Christopher uh, uh, White's research on the subject, and I'm wondering, is Chris on the phone? Yes, I'm right here, Mike. Good morning, Chris, from Santa Fe this morning. That's right. Tell us how it is in Santa Fe. It's beautiful, beautiful blue sky and a, a good day for going hiking. All right, man. Um, Chris, uh, man, what a rich uh, subject here. i got to uh, start with the traditional uh, boat talk question for you. We changed the terms for fishermen, boat builders, guitar players, writers, uh, what what messed you up is about uh, being a writer when you were young? And mind you, a good friend of mine is your good friend, George Murnahan. He says uh, he was a huge influence on you. <laughs> I didn't know that you knew George. How about that? Yeah, uh, in sixth grade, George and I wrote our first book, which was about the, the sort of the data and information about the solar system. And um, I think that we plagiarized most of the information that we put into that, that book and uh, printed one copy, but it never went very far. But um, when I was young, I collected books. I, was, I just loved two things, books and nature, the outdoors. And um, I started to write when I was about 12 or 13, and uh, I guess I was sort of de destined to write about uh, the environment eventually. Nicely done, and you have a uh, nice catalog of work. Uh, um, recent book kind of related to this subject is, uh, um, you'll tell me the title, is about the Chesapeake Skipjack oyster dredging fishery. Right, exactly. That was my first book on commercial fishermen, which I did uh, at the beginning of the, um, uh, the the 1990s is when I worked on it, basically, and uh, and then published it in 2009. And it was a book on the last uh, dredge boat captains in the Chesapeake Bay, the 18 captains that were left in those years, that decade, that were still using wooden sailboats and sails to catch oysters. And uh, I knew it was a dying tradition. Those captains were all descendant from uh, fathers and grandfathers that owned their boats before them, and the boats were passed down from grandfather to father to son. 
and it was remarkable to really document those families and the rich fishing and sailing tradition that they had. I rebuilt the skipjack, but it was down here. What's happened to the skipjacks and the skipjack fishery? Well, the, uh, the, the skipjacks basically have fallen out of favor because they, they just can't afford to keep them up. And so um, they're used in, in the, the 1990s. The state of Maryland changed the rule, which used to be since the Civil War, that you could only dredge for oysters under sail power. And in the 1990s, they changed that rule to be that two days a week, you could also use a push boat or a little tugboat to push your skipjack and catch oysters that way. So now the only skipjacks that are going out to dredge for oysters are doing that on Mondays and Tuesdays when they can use their power, supplementary power, auxiliary power. Mm. And uh, the Chesapeake, are they influenced by warming? I go down there a lot. It's way too warm to start off with for me, but... Yeah, yes, yes, they definitely are. Um, they, they, they're definitely having problems with um, algal blooms and um, problems with their their fisheries too. Um, it's it's sort of more remarkable in New England, just because uh, New England was always safe from that until recently, and so it's the the changes are more remarkable. Chris, you. Uh Again, your first uh, book there about skipjacks and commercial fishermen. So you wrote another one about lobstermen down east. And uh, as you say in the acknowledgments, uh, to put it mildly, a complicated uh, subject with possible difficulties. Uh, and you asked yourself the question, answered it wonderfully, why why do this book about lobsters and lobstermen down east? Right. Well, um, I think that um, someone needs to document what's going on. Um, I think that uh, with Long Island Sound, with the tragedy that happened in Long Island Sound with lobsters in the 1990s, and specifically in 1999, when the temperature in Long Island Sound became too steep and lobsters began to die off and also get shell disease in other parts of Long Island Sound, no one was documenting what was going on. And so this was an opportunity. I saw what had happened in Long Island Sound, and I also saw that the um, temperature increase was moving up the coast, up to Rhode Island and Narragansett Bay, up to Massachusetts Buzzards Bay, and all the way around Cape Cod. And I felt that someone needed to document what was the the livelihood and a, uh, a profession of lobstering in Maine before it was possibly damaged. So, Chris, you uh, thought you'd check out the coast of Maine, look for a uh, place to do your research, traveled around, and uh, place of places, you hit upon Stonington, Maine at the end of Deer Isle. Now, even as a Maine native, I feel from away down in Stonington, you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. Not I understand. an easy place to uh, just show up and say, hi, I want to be part of the gang. But you, you hung out there for more than a couple of seasons, didn't you? I did. And uh, people warned me, um, especially my, my agent um, warned me that, um, and she has a house in Maine, she warned me that people up and down east would not um, open their doors to me because I was from away. Um, but I found the opposite to be true. I found uh, everyone in Stonington to be very beckoning and, and very helpful, and they were interested in the story coming to pass. And so that was a real delight to have that happen. And I found that Stonington was just, I really searched for the best 
base camp to do this story on the lobster industry of Maine, and I seized upon Stonington because the lobsters have been migrating north over the last 40 or 50 years because of ocean warming, and uh, the population center point in the, the subpopulation of the Gulf of Maine had moved from Casco Bay around Portland um, uh, 30 years ago up to the north part of Penobscot Bay today. So that meant that uh, the highest concentration of lobsters was now no longer off Portland, but it was off Stonington. And that meant that Stonington had all the challenges of global warming going on. They had a huge uh, uh, catch that they had to deal with, marketing that they had to deal with, sales that they had to deal with, and also the prospect that all this could fall to pieces. And as you say, uh, off of Stonington, Maine today, center of the universe, which everybody around here pretty much assumes to start with, but in fact going 4.3 miles north and east next year and the year after and the year after and maybe quicker after a while. That's right. That's right. I, I think that um, the, the, it's, it's, it's 43 miles per decade or 4.3 miles per year that lobsters are moving out in the Atlantic. And they seem to be moving a little slower in the Gulf of Maine from what I could determine. But no one's really measuring that closely. So it'll be interesting to see if people start to track it a little bit more specifically. But, of course, if you take that, that now the lobsters are concentrated off Stonington and you extrapolate 4.3 miles per year farther northeast, you're talking about the lobsters crossing the Canadian border in 30 years or so. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, this is Alan. Um, I have one question that you may not be able to answer. There's probably not a, a black or white answer to it, but when they, people say that the, mig- the uh, lobsters are migrating north every year, are they really migrating or is the southern population just dying off so that the population appears to right, be? Right, exactly. It's, it, it is a little confusing. Yeah, they're not migrating. They're not, they're not um, you know, mobily uh, moving, crawling um, farther north. What's happening is the population is reseeding itself so that lobsters are breeding and more eggs are reproducing farther northeast. The life of a lobster is quite a uh, story to start with. And uh, got to congratulate you, though, Chris. Uh, I would say that the fact that you were able to uh, hang out in Stonington successfully might reflect on you as well as the folks down there. Uh, possibly pretty good at what you do is what I'm suggesting. But yeah. but tell us about the biology of a, of a little lobster and uh, how they get to be uh, big enough for me to eat. Yeah, okay. Well, that's really fascinating because lobsters, like most marine species, are totally dependent upon sea temperatures for their growth, their reproduction, and their well-being. And so a baby lobster, a lobster that is hatched from eggs, um, uh, flows to the surface of the water column and stays there for about two weeks and then settles on the bottom of the ocean. And there they grow. They, they go through various uh, changes to become larvae, post-larvae, and young adults. Then it takes, in the Gulf of Maine, anywhere from seven to eight years for a lobster to become an adult, legal-sized lobster. Now, farther south, like, let's say, in Long Island Sound, it only takes about six or seven years because the water's warmer. 
But in the Gulf of Maine, it's cooler or colder, and so it takes longer, it takes seven or eight years for a lobster to mature to legal size. But what's been happening recently with the uh, ocean warming is that uh, it used to be that females would only reach sexual maturity right about the time they were becoming legal size, about eight, their eighth year. But more recently, they've been maturing so that they're, they're reaching sexual maturity in their sixth or seventh year. If you go out with a lobsterman in the Gulf of Maine, let's say out of Stonington, they'll tell you and they can show you that females being pulled onto their boat in their traps often are egg-bearing and have eggs on the, below their abdomen when they're young, when they're, when they're not even legal size, so that they're, they're egg-bearing females, but they can't even keep them even if they were legal. Um, so, and then in addition to that, the ocean warming is causing earlier molting. So when the, when the boom really happened in 2012, uh, the uh, lobsters were molting in June rather than in July and August. And there was repeat molting where a lobster was, rather than molting just once in the summer, lobsters were starting to molt twice in the summer, maybe another time in the autumn. And that meant that lobsters were coming into the fishery so much quicker, and so many more were coming into the fishery, and that meant that the the population was booming. And not all upside that you would guess at. Uh, Chris, we were talking about the fish uh, lobsters there. Uh, We were talking about people before. Let's go back to people. You uh, were lucky enough, among other people, to run into Frank Gottwalds when you got down to Stonington. And we got Frank on the phone. I think he's out in the boat. Good morning, Frank. Hey, how you doing? Good. You're out fishing today? We're out fishing, yeah. We're uh, down below uh, Spoon Island out here in the eastern bay, enjoying a beautiful day. How many traps have you hauled so far today? Oh, let me see. Let me count. Oh, 150 or so, I guess. Yeah, that's a pretty early start, isn't it? Start around 4 or so. Yeah, I usually get up at 4 and try to get out of the co-op around 5. And I'm not a real early bird like some of them, but... Is that so you can spend the afternoon at the country club or because lobsters get up early? That's right. That's the whole idea is that, you know, you, you get done early so you can go home to the country club and play golf, I guess. Excellent, man. What a life. How are they coming this year, Frank? Well, right at the moment, uh, things are starting to look pretty good. Things are picking up here. The new shells are starting to show up in pretty good numbers. And so we're uh, looking forward to a decent season. Nice. Frank, i got to ask you this. Um you know, this fellow, Chris White, showed up to uh, town and, and uh, kind of wants to follow you around and, and figure out who you are and what you do um, and write a book about you. Is it is it weird or cool to have a book written about you? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think initially, uh, you know, uh, that, that I, I didn't think that I was going to be really as much a part of the book as I was. Oh, you're but, the hero, uh, man. You're the hero. Uh, apparently so. Well, my, my wife would take issue with that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's fine. I mean, I'm kind of used to it as a musician. You know, I'm sort of used to to uh, having stuff written about me. So it, it was, um, you know, I, I guess it's always a little disconcerting uh, to read about yourself through somebody else's eyes in a way, but yeah, it was fine and it's, uh, I'm enjoying the book, and uh, Chris and I and uh, his wife and my wife all kind of got to be friends, so everything worked out good. 
Nice. Chris uh, and, and Frank, too, uh, I, I kind of think theme here comes from a lobsterman. I fixed his boat years ago, and he said, you think my job is catching lobsters? It's selling the, the you know, <laughs> uh, markets, markets, markets. And you not only uh, uh, fish and farm and make music, you uh, have been the president of the Stonington Lobster Co-op for a lot of years past and now involved in something called the Maine uh, Lobster Marketing Commission, which, uh, among other collaborative, things... Collaborative, yeah. yeah. Collaborative, you, yeah, key word there. Okay, excellent. Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative. Excellent, uh, good point. But you go to trade shows, you go to food shows, you go to, like, Chicago and set up a Maine Lobster booth and bring you a guitar, right? Uh, well, not exactly, but... Uh, <laughs> no, I've been to a couple uh, different ones, mostly early on when we were, um, you know, sort of charting our way and figuring out what what would be the most effective way to, to try to get the word out about Maine Lobster. Because, you know, I guess what we all have in common in the lobster industry is that we need people to eat them. And if people don't want to eat them, then uh, we don't have a business. So that's kind of the idea behind the marketing is to make sure that lobsters uh in the public eye and, uh, you know, some of the assets we have as a fishery in terms of uh, the sustainability and the and, uh, Owner, operator, uh, local food, all those kinds of things, I guess, that people are interested in now. So it's been fun. I guess the point I was uh, trying to get to there, the uh, book, also a marketing tool, uh, I would think. But what? Excuse me again? I, I said that. the book could, is a marketing oh, tool, too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's the, they say in show business, all publicity is good publicity, I think, something along those lines. So, yeah, no, I think so. It's uh, anything that... That gets the word out about lobster is uh, is a good thing for us. Excellent, Frank. Um, you uh, you built your own lobster boat. You know that's uh, that's the big big uh, big cost item for fishermen is the the price of a boat. Um, so making your own, you'll save some money. But that's a lot of work, and this is the second one you've built too, right? Yeah. In in, in all fairness, uh, you know the Peter Buxton's the boat builder, and and. Uh, at Buxton Boats down here in Stonington. And so when we did the first one, it was something he and I have been friends for years and we talked about for a long time. And I'd always, you know, I've always enjoyed working with wood and he was ready to, to get out of the fiberglass business. And so we just said the heck with it. And uh, he actually designed both these boats as well. So right. it's a lot of work, but a lot of fun. And uh, I can tell you, you know, there's a little uh, swell out here from the hurricane, I guess, down south. And, uh, this thing's just sitting pretty. It's as comfortable as can be. Right. So. Nothing better than the motion of the ocean, bud. <laughs> there you go. You, you made I know. It. If I'm not careful, I'll fall asleep and fall over. <laughs> you you uh, probably missed it, but a couple of years ago, we talked with Richard Stanley, who was doing uh, uh, fishing boats that are uh, wood hull bottom and fiberglass tops, which seemed like Great. Yeah. yeah. Pretty good idea. And it is, yeah. Could I offer what I know as a boat builder and sailor about the theory of having a wooden hull? Yeah. Um, I fixed up an old Jones Porter, and uh, the fellow got a fiberglass boat, and after I fixed it up, he, he did, of course, thought it was a bit too much fix-up. We fixed it up for a summer guy with lots of money. He wanted the thing back. He says that other thing. He says, it makes my knees tremble. It's like being inside of a tin drum, he says, and, and the engine vibrations are absorbed partly by the, fire, by the wooden hull. And the fiberglass, yeah, they, they right. vibrate more, mm -hmm. as was, you know, the idea. Well, yeah, no, I had a fiberglass boat for the better part of 20 years, I guess. And, and 
I yeah no it is definitely true there's the the wood absorbs some of the the noise the vibration and and you know especially as they you know they start to soak up a lot of water you you get the weight distributed below the water line and and you know at least in those the opinion of those of us who like wooden boats I guess it's a, it's a more comfortable ride but um I think they've come a long way with with fiberglass boats too in terms of you know comfort and and of course, the other thing is that most of them now are a lot bigger, so that probably helps. Well, and the boats are getting bigger because people are fishing a lot longer season. Speak about your season now, Frank. Well, yeah, I mean, when I went lobstering all year round, uh, you know, back in the in the mid late eighties and early nineties, uh, there was almost nobody else that that went all winter. It, it was a you know pretty sparsely populated out there and. For a good reason, yeah. There, there, just, there wasn't that much there, and, and you know, people didn't really have the equipment to, uh, to you know, the way that the you know the boats they're building now are a lot bigger, a lot faster, and, and uh, they're designed to go a lot further and lug a lot more traps, and so it's uh, yeah, it's changed a lot. We left out everything's harder and more dangerous in the winter. <laughs> well, yeah, that is true. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, to to the. To, to, in, fishing in the winter is, is uh, makes an already potentially dangerous, uh, physically dangerous occupation that well, much more risky for sure. <laughs> let's uh, catch catch people up for a minute. We forget uh, how people listen to radio sometimes, and if you just tuned in, we're doing boat talk this morning. We're talking uh, about the new. I think it's a new main classic, the last lobster, Christopher White. We got Chris on the phone and Frank Gottwalds, who's in the book from his boat this morning, and. Uh, uh, talking lobsters here, and the idea that blew me away from this book, one of them is that I've been watching the landings and kind of peaked a year or two ago. And, and uh, But the truth is that summer landings, it turns out, peaked more than a couple of years ago, and the difference is being made up by the winter fishery, which is increasing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there's no doubt in my mind that, you know, that's, that's been the biggest difference in terms of the overall catch is, is uh, um, you know, the, just the number of boats and the number of traps and obviously the number of lobsters available, uh, you know, from really late, you know, the, the mid to late fall uh, and, and even, you know, there's people that are fishing off there all summer and doing pretty well, so... It's changed. It's changed the way it looks for sure. It's not the same ground summer and winter either. No, it's not anything. Yeah. Explain about explain about uh, how how many feet are your traps in uh, average today, Frank? How deep well, you probably today we're you know we're averaging maybe about you know somewhere between around fifteen fathoms, something like that, which would be between you know between ten and fifteen fathoms, probably between sixty and ninety feet somewhere yep. in there. And uh, yeah, in the winter you could be. Uh, you know, they fish all the way out to the edge of the continental shelf, so that gives you some idea of how the depth of the water that that uh, lobsters are found in. Three four three four hundred feet instead. Yeah, and, or, or deeper. Yeah, five six hundred feet even. Yeah. And we're also talking uh, twenty five thirty miles or more outside of Isla Ho. Oh yeah, easily. Yeah. yeah, easily. And I'm one of the few people I know that gets paid to be out there without lobster or fishing. I deliver boats and go by there. That's a MD, MDI of the Cape Cod Canal, you go right over those buoys, uh, that, that ground, uh, delivering boats. And 
yeah, again, we right. don't go out there in January for a good reason, you know. <laughs> don't deliver boats in January? Not as No. Yeah. The ones we've left with <laughs> snow on the deck didn't turn out good, tell you the truth. Uh, so, I got you. Yeah. I got you. Well, listen, uh, I, I got to uh, kind of get back to work here yeah. and uh, keep my helper Busy the cunning uh, one? We got the cunning one today from, from the book there? Oh, that's right. That's yes. right. Yeah. Hello, ten, ten, ten years and counting. Yeah. 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 Like I say, she's cunning. You keep her. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so one quick question before you leave, yeah. Frank. Um, sure. Back to your boat. Um, Chris says you, your boat was uh, pl- uh, planked with pine. Is that correct? No, that's not correct. Okay. That was... Uh, that was, I guess he didn't check that fact, but no, it's cedar. <laughs> okay. yeah, it's oh, cedar uh, over oak. Yeah. Yes, cedar. That's pretty normal. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, good luck fishing, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. We're going to be going out at the end of the show playing Sailor's Blues from you. Yeah, so I hear. Well, that's great. Yeah, great. great. Hey, thanks, All right. so, thanks so much, Frank. Good luck, Frank. Hey, thanks, Chris. My pleasure, and uh, take care, guys, and uh, maybe uh, we'll talk again sometime. Anytime. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Sell some more, sell some more lobsters, if nothing else. Yeah. Uh, let alone books. Uh, so that opens up one phone line now: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We've we've just started with Chris. Honestly, this is the subject we could uh, talk, Chris. I think for a couple hours here, but uh, we also have another little uh, thing we've got to do this morning, which is give away a couple of tickets. Yeah, you and I, and we've been doing it for several years now. We enjoy going down to the main boats, homes, and harbors. Um, show which is in you enjoy it it makes me nervous really after all these years it's outside my bubble man we stand up in front of several hundred people on a sunday morning with mr microphone and and mc the world boatyard dog championship uh which again is outside of my bubble uh they can't see you here there's no sense blushing on the radio we're not in front of you yeah or just voices but yeah It's still fun. But wonderful show. It's In the water show. boat show, uh, lifestyles, uh, food, uh, you know, the onshore and, and on boats, the water. Boats. Couldn't be boats. recommended more. You come uh, Sunday morning, you'll see the World Boatyard Dog Championship only held in Rockland one day a year. Yeah. We'll be there. It'll be August 12th. The show goes um, the 10th, 11th, and 12th of August. Yeah. And... Uh, we have a pair of tickets to give away to uh, anybody. The first caller will make it. Just the first caller to call this number, this number only, 469-6600. And uh, you can get a pair of complimentary t- tickets to go see the Main Boats, Homes, and Harbors show in August. All right. Back to Chris White. Chris is uh, in Santa Fe this morning, and uh, uh, we're talking about the Maine lobster fishery. Um Oh, which way was I going ahead then? Uh, uh, Chris, as I said earlier, the, uh, it comes down to uh, you not only have to catch the things, but you have to sell them. And uh, the price for lobstermen on the boat is sort of like blueberries. It hasn't gone up much this century. Well, and it took a big hit, too. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, supply and demand being what it is, uh, and free, uh, quote, free market, uh uh, demand has been through the roof, and nowadays they're selling about 10% of it to China. You say in the book that selling it to China is not a problem. Delivering it to China is the problem. Shedders don't travel well. They'll buy everything we can take them. They're buying up docks and buying stations on the coast of Maine. But the great leader just put a 30% tariff on, on our lobsters. Ooh. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a huge problem. Um I talk about this in the book. The um, 
export, if, if you look at um, the main lobster industry being somewhere around a $500 million or a $550 million endeavor every year, about $400 million of that comprises exports to Europe and to Asia. That's 70 or about 70% of, of lobsters caught in Maine are exported. Now, a lot of that just simply goes to Canada for processing, and that's included in that export figure. But still, that's a huge amount, and Maine lobstermen are definitely, have definitely become dependent upon exports and have become more and more dependent upon countries like China. And now with the, uh, the, uh, the levy, you know, that's, that's, uh, being imposed on Maine lobsters, um, it could be a real problem for them because the cost could become prohibitive for China to, to import lobsters from Maine. You talk about a uh, uh, $500 million uh, fishery, more or less, on the cover of the brand-new Fisherman's Voice. Maine Lobster Industry, a study by Colby College, says that direct and indirect benefits to the Maine economy, $1 billion. Oh, yeah. Pretty, pretty soon we'll be talking about some serious money here, you know. And, it's true, uh, it's true. If, if you just think about uh, along the Maine coast, restaurants, trucking, um, uh, tourism, all the things that depend upon lobsters. I mean, Maine tourism wouldn't really exist if it wasn't for the lobster. Uh, I mean, it, the Maine coast is gorgeous, but most people that come up to Maine to vacation, the one thing that they want to do while they're in Maine is eat a lobster. And so it's very important to them, and it's very important to the industry. I've learned a couple things about eating lobster. One of my pet peeves is don't boil them with the rubber bands on them ever. Right. Would you throw rubber into the pot to season the water? Okay, it just kills me, okay? Absolutely kills me. The other thing is that uh, shedders are what you want to be eating. They're, they're sweet and easy to get into, but they yeah, don't travel. amazing. They're really incredible. But they don't travel well. Yeah, that's true. It's that's hard true. to get a shedder to China. Yeah, the Chinese don't want shedders. The Chinese want hard lobsters because they, they, they travel and export much more uh, safely. We're also exploring new ways to get lobster meat to them. Uh, this uh, surprised me a little bit. We are uh, cutting them up uncooked and flash freezing tails and claws and mailing them away. Right. That's pretty smart. Uh, uh, can you talk about other ways, that uh, alternative ways to sell a lobster besides in the shell? Well, yeah, uh, um, they call it value-added um, uh, products, and there are a lot of ways that they can take uh, a lobster tails out of the shell and or leave it in the shell even and stuff it with crab meat or um, come up with other various uh, lobster products that people want overseas. So that's a big business, and it's growing all the time. We are doing Boat Talks morning. we got Chris White on the phone, The uh, Last Lobster. It's the brand-new book. Highly recommended. Uh, we haven't even given the phone number yet, Alan. Uh, I was just wondering that. one yeah. one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We'll get you right into it. Yeah, if you want to join the conversation, when the phone rings, we answer it. Uh, we don't have any doesn't rules, have to be but, about lobsters. This is well, boat talk. So still, we uh, you know, that's how it works around here. Um yeah, the um, like say marketing is the uh, whole thing. You've got to sell the thing, and price can vary between uh, what the lobsterman gets on the boat 
uh, maybe literally two, three dollars a pound sometimes. Uh, one reason Frank stays out in the winter at Christmas, a lobster can be sold for five or six instead. But then a lobsterman goes up the road and into a restaurant and sees that same lobster he saw for uh, he sold for three dollars uh, cost thirty. And and um, that makes lobstermen's a, a little uh, crazy. Uh, um, and again, uh, there are people trying to integrate the supply chain, including the lobstermen nowadays. There are. There's a lot of lobstermen who have been, uh, enlisted their families to do, as Chris was saying, value-added products, making lobster pies, lobster roll, lobster everything that's uh, – some of them are getting sold out of state even, but we're not talking China yet, I don't think, with too much of our value-added stuff. We say there's uh, just about 5,000 lobstermen on the coast of Maine. There's about 300 lobster dealers. Uh, Chris, there's always been quite a bit of tension between the dealers and, and the lobstermen. Yeah. Yes, there absolutely has been. There's been, uh, there, there's been uh, uh, accusations of price-fixing both in both directions. Not just the lobstermen have said that the dealers are price fixing, but uh, the dealers have said that the lobstermen have done the same thing. So there's there's a lot of tension between the two. Definitely, uh, things are changing a little bit. Like the uh, the main um, lobster lobstering union that has been established over the last couple of years has just bought a uh, a processing facility on Mount Desert uh, and. They're going to be actually in the business of selling lobsters and uh, distributing them. Um, the uh, uh, thing has uh, always been about uh, conservation as well, hasn't it? It's one of the success stories of, of the Maine lobster fishery. Frank used the word sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, Gulf of Maine Research Institute, which came up with the forecast this spring that they uh, that they did a National Science Foundation funded mathematical model of the lobster uh, population in the Gulf of Maine and projected that lobsters are going to decline by anywhere from forty two percent to sixty percent by twenty fifty, but they said that that is not anywhere near how bad it would be, uh, and then that would be because of ocean warming. But they said that uh, that's not anywhere as bad as it would be if it wasn't for all the conservation measures that have been put in place over the last hundred years. Minimum size, maximum size, uh, excluding egg-bearing females, all of those things have been really important to keep the population uh, robust. I've got a degree in biology, and you described something that just also blew me away, which is a survey of uh, lobster habitat uh, from basically, I'm thinking, Massachusetts uh, down to Canada. And um, they go to the same spot every year. They put a grid on the bottom of the ocean floor. They vacuum everything up in that little space there, take it back to the lab and count and uh, characterize mm -hmm. everything. Uh, tiny little lobster larvae, people that eat them and live near them and, you know, uh, fascinating, and again, that predicts the future. Yeah, and uh, they're not seeing the babies, are they? No, they aren't. And and that really began with um, Rick Wally, who's a professor of marine science at the University of Maine, and he's been involved with the study that you're just talking about. Uh, and he he started to predict that in 
two, I think in 2007 or 2008, he started to predict a decline in the lobster population. And the reason was that they began in, I think, the 1980s doing a survey called the American Lobster Settlement Index, which uh, grades and measures the number of um, post larvae that fall onto the ocean bottom after they hatch from the eggs. And they found that in the early, the 1990s, they were getting approximately two larvae per square meter on the ocean bottom. Uh, but by 2007, that amount had decreased 75% to 0.5 larvae per meter squared. Mm-hmm. And that level, uh, 0.5, has continued for the last 10 or 13 years. So that uh, over the last 10 or 12 years, there's been a really low level for the ALCE index, which they believe means that uh, those lobsters, once they mature, remember we were talking earlier in the program about lobsters taking eight years to mature in the Gulf of Maine. That means when they grow up, they're, no, they're not going to be a big population because the larvae just weren't there. Mm. Now, conservation measures have been enforced in Maine for decades and decades, and among other people who are all in favor of them are the fishermen. I'm sorry, say that again? I said conservation measures have been uh, enforced in Maine for a long time, and the fishermen are very enthusiastic about them. They know that they work, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I found just unilaterally that uh, the lobstermen in Maine uh, uh, consistently follow the conservation measures and believe very strongly in them and, and enforce them. They enforce themselves, really. And a cheating fisherman, in some ways, got more to worry about about his buddies than he does the yeah, wardens. Yeah, yeah. Now, speaking of uh, fishermen worrying about each other, um, there's a unique aspect to the Maine fishery that you just blew me away and nailed so good, um, which is about territory. And your Maine license is broken up into uh, zones. If you have a, a license in Stonington, I believe it's zone C, you can fish in a certain uh, set-aside area of ocean, but not off of Portland. Uh, but given that you're in zone C, C, theoretically, you're able to put a trap anywhere you want. In actual fact, that's not true. That's true. That's true. Yet Maine and the Gulf of Maine are unique in North America and in the United States that there are territories where the ocean has been divided up by families and territorial groups uh, into various fishing grounds that only certain people can fish. And um, it's really a dividing up a common resource, which you would think that the federal government or the state government would come in and say, you can't divide up the, uh, a common resource into individual plots of land, plots of water, but that's what they do, and they get away with it. And it's actually worked well to uh, conserve the fishery. And again, it's a limited entry uh, slash conservation device at, a, at, at the end of it, yeah. Now, among other people, you lucked into Julie Eaton, uh, yeah. who is a fisher fisherman, uh, proudly speaking, and uh, also involved in the new uh, Lobsterman's Union, I, I understand. But Julie married Sid Eaton, and... Uh, 
I heard Sid Eaton's stories starting back in the 80s, delivering boats uh, <laughs> through Stonington with a, with another fisherman, you know. And Sid's a bit of a legend. And um, after you know him for a year or so, he opened up to you a little bit and told him about, um, as he says, got a bit of a reputation. Yeah, he does. He actually does. He, he did. He he to, he to, he admitted to me that he had uh, um, pulled a gun on another lobsterman and that was invading his territory and pulled the trigger. So that was something else. But uh, yeah, he told some great stories and lost his lost his license a time or two. But Sid yeah. is um, Sid's being uh, Sid Eaton. He is uh, working on his heritage. Um, tell us about Sid's grandfather and father. Um, you, well, you you tell the story. You probably be better at it than me. Well, um, if you're uh, headed, uh, you know, anywhere from uh, Stonington by water, you will. Uh, your next stop after the end of Deer Isle is uh, you can see down uh, about ten miles away. You got uh, uh, North Haven and Vinyl Haven, and the passage in between them, you know, is where you're going to go on your yacht. It's good fishing ground too. Back, um, guessing ninety years ago, Sid's grandfather noticed there weren't hardly anybody lobstering off of North Haven. And went down there and started setting traps. Well, there were people on Vinyl Haven, and they objected. And uh, Sid's grandfather fought him for the right to uh, um, physically fought him sometimes for the right to uh, uh, lobster down there. And that was carried on by his father, and Sid carries it on to this day. Yeah, he still got that territory too. Yeah, but Which it's is remarkable because uh, I mean, Stonington is at least eight miles over the water from North Haven eight or ten miles, and yet Sid rides shotgun over Vinyl Haven and part of uh, part of North Haven as well, uh, even though he's living in Stonington. It's remarkable. And as you say, Sid's got a twinkle in his eye, but <laughs> there's something about him that says you wouldn't mess with him. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, one of my one of my best captain buddies uh, is really good friends with Julie, and he will tell you that that uh, before Julie met Sid, she knew all about him and thought he was ten feet tall, had a green head, and breathed fire and fangs, you know. And <laughs> uh, but then married him, and and then had to uh, learn learn about his territory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the two of them together, a uh, heck of a pair, and uh, they fish different boats and sort of compete with each other a little bit, don't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like I say, uh, I've been hearing those stories for years, and and uh, just fascinating the way that you kind of nailed that. I thought, and uh, besides, we we mentioned exchanging gunfire. The typical thing is that you uh, see a trap that you don't uh, like where it is, and you want to tell the fellow you object. So maybe you'll break the spindle off the top of his trap. Maybe you'll prick it up and uh, hitch the line over the buoy, uh, you know, tie it off. Uh, then it gets to cutting the buoy off, which may be as many as one uh, to three or five traps or so, more or less, $100 a shot plus, uh, you know. $150, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then it gets to uh, uh, knives, fists, and other things, you know. And, again, that's the history of it. But, uh, as you say, fascinating, not allowed, uh, strictly speaking, anywhere else, but it kind of works. No, no one that allows it anywhere in the country, but it, it, it seems to work. And, and actually, the interesting thing is that when the state of Maine came up with the idea to, in, to create the lobster zones, the seven lobster zones that are, of course, much larger than territories and encapsulate the territories, uh, they really modeled the whole system af after the territories, the family territories that exist. 
Let's give the phone number again, Alan, just in case somebody wants to join the sure. conversation. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, or you can also go, use email too. Go directly to boattalk at gmail dot com, and it'll come right here into the uh, boat talk cabin. Talking to Chris White this morning. He's uh, sitting in Santa Fe explaining Stonington Maine and lobsters to us. And uh, we note the irony of that. But uh, one of the things I thought you did extraordinarily well in the book, Chris, was the, the sociology, the, let's, let's say, the dialect dialogue of the lobstermen, the people, people in Stonington in the, in the store in the morning, on the water, at the dock. Uh, very well done. Yeah, I actually, uh, when I originally wrote the book, my first manuscript, I had a lot more dialect in the book, but my editors thought that it was a little too thick, was a little too heavy, so I, I trimmed it down a little bit. But I, I, I tried to keep it still enough to um, to give people the feel for what it's like up and down the east. I forget what it was. It was uh, some kind of documentary film. It was on the coast of Maine, and uh, they run it on the public television and run subtitles so people could understand what people were saying. Yeah. <laughs> we have a phone call, so let's let's go to Ivor out on Swan's Island. Good morning, Ivor, and congratulations. You won the tickets to the Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors show. Yeah, thank you. It's going to be fun. I'm psyched to go see it. Yeah. Have you seen it before? No, I've never been there. Oh, really? Come okay. on over. Yeah, it's great I'm fun. Swan's Island just hanging out, but I have to be off for that weekend, so that's perfect. Great. So what can we do for you, Ivor? Well, I was wondering, how do you think the um, the 25% uh, uh, tariff that's going on to uh, Maine Lobster on Friday is supposed to affect things? I know um, I was talking to people, and they say it's down by a buck, about a buck already but i mean who knows if that's just the summer coming on but um uh i think it's you know it can't be good can i add to that uh, before we get chris's opinion on it i yeah. uh, saw a fellow on the news the other night he had just lost his uh, job in a nail factory in indiana uh over the uh, steel tariff he's a trump voter and he says i still support him wholeheartedly i believe that he knows exactly what he's doing yeah i know a lot of people do but i mean a lot of people feel that way, but I don't know. I, I've heard uh, also that you know people feel bad about their choices, so then they double down on them or whatever. But but uh, I'm not worried so much about that. I'm just worried about like what what I heard that we have a lot more shedders here or new shells. So maybe um, and they say that that's the ones that get bought most by like Chinese processors because they use them for I don't know just like chunks of lobster and things like that, right? Want to speak about? Want to speak about it, Chris? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, I think it's going to take a while to see exactly what the the spinoff and the what happens when the dust settles with the tariffs. It's going to take a while to see what actually happens. But um, I mean, my instinct is that it it can't be good for Maine lobstermen. I don't understand what the goal is. Is the goal to get them to? Uh, take their tariffs off, and then we do, and then the price goes way back down. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a bidding war. They're trying to, uh, you know, out dunk each other. Well, I'm uh, not economically uh, uh, minded, uh, to say the least, and uh, like I say, I've been puzzling that one quite a bit. Um, Ivor, um, we'll hope to see you over to the show. 
yeah, uh, Rainbow Tomes and Harbor Show uh, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, yeah. second second uh, weekend of August there. Yeah. Uh, probably there Saturday. Thank you. Yeah. All, right. All right, man. Thank you, Ivor. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. We still have about ten minutes left in boat talk. Yeah, and I didn't get you to say what I uh, hope to get you to say earlier, and we'll bring it back in when we're talking about the sociology of lobstermen uh, to begin with, which was uh, why write a book and and take the chance on uh, hanging out with these people to start with, Chris. Okay. Well, um, I think that uh, the 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 main thing that drove me to the story was. First of all, I've always been enchanted with Maine. I've always loved Maine, and I've, I've been interested in Maine lobstermen for years. Um, but what happened was I wrote that book, Skipjack, about the watermen of the Chesapeake Bay that use sailboats. And then after that book, I wrote a book called The Melting World, which was about the effect of climate change on glaciers in the Rocky Mountains. And I just decided to combine the two stories and look at a uh, commercial fishery that was being impacted in some way by climate change, that it was so important. And certainly because all of these species, these marine species, are, being, are moving towards the North Pole um, because of ocean warming, it seemed to me that there's got to be some fallout from that on the local fishermen. And I want to see how the local fishermen were dealing with climate change, not necessarily um, um, just responding to it, but also to see how that they could actually accommodate it and um, and work with it, and that's what drew me in. I got to quote you from uh, the acknowledgments at the end of the book. Here it says, uh, "Why ask? Uh, why write a book about Maine lobstermen?" The long answer can be found in the pages of the book. The short answer is what a perfect way to spend time with some of the most genuine and fascinating people on the planet. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. Yeah. We have another phone call. I'm afraid this is going to be our last phone call because we have Frank Gottwalls is going to be taking us out of the show at the end here. But we've got time to go to Frank and Lemoyne. Good morning, Frank. Yeah, hi. You know, from a lobster fishing uh, point of view, Having all your eggs in one basket sometimes is not the best thing to do, I would say. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially when it's completely out of your control. And you got to go catch it. You can't farm it. And there's lots of variables. I mean, the buying or selling it, you can figure that out. But you can't figure out the weather or nature. Uh, anyways, they ought to go back to their old lifestyle and stop buying half-million-dollar boats and just going with the friendship sloop. They'd probably get $50 a pound rather than three. Uh, like that, take the Canadian model and fish 350 traps and then go to Florida for the rest of the winter, like most of the Canadian lobster fishermen do. Anyways, that's it. One of the uh, scenes in, in my, uh, Chris's book is uh, in the store in the morning when the kid comes in and says, I got myself a house, I own it. And the other boys say, no, you don't, bank does. Yeah. And not if I catch every lobster in the ocean, but the fact is that some of these kids are making big money, and the first thing they do is go get big loans and, and put themselves in good American debt. Um, houses, boats, uh, kids, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, toys. And, uh, again, uh you know, that's the American way, but uh, being a hunter-gatherer at the best time is is the best thing on the planet until. So, Chris... Well, yeah, uh, because you, don't, you, you really have to anticipate the cycles that come with a, a fishing industry, and you're not always going to have great times. You're going to have some 
poor times and some good times and some great times, but you have to be aware of that and ready for that. But right now, the Maine fishermen or, or quite a number of Maine lobstermen have become very vulnerable. The lobster is now making up 80% of the Maine fisheries in terms of dollar value. So we really have a monoculture where where Maine fishermen are really going after one fishery, basically, mm. I mean, large to a large extent, and that is um, um, makes them very vulnerable to a downturn. Chris, we got to uh, have Frank Gottwald's play us out here, and uh, real quick, contact information, and what are you working on now, buddy? Uh, uh, my, oh, well, uh, my, you want me to get my website? Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my website is um, uh, lastlobster.com. Easy enough, lastlobster.com. And uh, right now I'm just exploring ideas for, for new books. I haven't centered on one thing yet, but I'm looking at various things. But I'm, I'm really interested in doing another story on commercial fishermen. And quite a thing to go uh, immerse yourself in a place and people, uh, kind of a, a working uh, undercover assignment in, in some ways, isn't it? Well, it's fascinating to go live another life and, and find out about a whole new world, a whole new universe. Uh, it's fascinating to me. Ain't you lucky you run into our friend George Murnahan in, in fourth grade and you guys uh, started writing yeah, books? Yeah, right? I know. He straightened me out. That's uh, right. I, I told him about this the other day, heads up, and, and he started laughing, which was a wonderful thing. So George, one of my favorite <laughs> summer people down That's at Castine. Yeah. Thanks for that, Mike. Yeah. Chris, can't thank you enough, man. Uh, I feel we barely covered it, but we got to uh, sing ourselves out here with with your friend, our friend, Frank Gottwals. Yep, Frank Gottwals is standing by to uh, take us out of boat talk. Thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room. We did get one uh, email quickly. I'm not going to be able to answer the question, but James from Deer Isle says uh, we should discuss the problem with the, the herring collapse also. Come we can on. get to bait. Yeah, we didn't get to that. We can smell it from here, but we can get to talk about it. Good point. But All right, here comes uh, Frank Godwalls doing Sailor's Blues to take us out of boat talk for this week. Yeah, well. I'm Captain Nails, I once caught whales, now my boots are squeaky clean. I do all my fishing here by my coffee machine. I sail every seventh sea. Nothing brought me to my knees Till the day they told me I would roam no more Support for WERU comes from our listeners.